You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Carl Za from the Silk and Steel podcast to talk to us about the opium wars in China. So how are you doing, Carl? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm still recovering from my latest bout of COVID, but um, otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> and a, a lot has changed since the last time you were here. You're now a father, right? Yes, yes. My son is already a year and eight months. So yeah, a lot has changed indeed. <laughs> how, is the, how is it being new, a new father? Oh, it's wonderful. I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All, all the all the guys out there, go go get yourself a child, <laughs> make it happen. Okay, <laughs> that's funny. Um, what's your son? Uh, he's a. Do they speak yet? Yeah, he's at the age where he's learning to speak. Now he's more comfortable speaking in the local language in Balinese and Bahasa Indonesia because we have a babysitter and he spends a lot of time with uh, his babysitter, so he's picking up the. The local lingual. I'm trying to teach him Chinese, but I'm the only person that speaks Chinese here, so <laughs> it's a bit of a struggle. Well, we'll try. I, my goal is to have him be quadrilingual. You know, be fluent in. He, he'll be fluent in Balinese and Indonesian, no problem. But I also want to teach him English and Chinese. Okay. Well, with my nieces, the best thing that helped was having my uncle come over and visit for a few months from India. So mm. you might want to have your parents come over and visit. Yeah, my original plan was actually go visit United States during Christmas New Year uh, break, but then I read about the pandemic situation in U.S. It seems like the this winter the flu and the COVID was really bad. You know, my my parents were able to avoid catching COVID for three years in US because they rarely go out and they always mask up when they when they when they go out, but they finally got it. Like my my parents, both my parents just caught it. So I was afraid that you know if I travel to US, I was accidentally introduce it to them. That's why I canceled the trip, but they got it anyway. So <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll visit them when the weather is warmer, you know, when there's less risk risk of uh, flu and uh COVID. Yeah, um, here in Russia, somehow like the sanctions and I guess has really done wonders to help the COVID situation. It seems fully under control from what I can see. Oh, wow. That's nice. Yeah, but it's probably because of the war and the sanctions and people, the sanctions make a quarantine. That means people inside are kind of stuck inside and people outside are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, where do we start with the opium trade? Shall we talk about the British first or how the opium got introduced or like, where do you want to begin? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's start from the beginning. So opium itself is actually well known in the Chinese traditional medicine. It was used as a painkiller, but they also aware the dangerous side effects, you know, congest too much opium, you will kill you because before the opium was ingested orally, and too much quantity of opium injected taken in orally would cause death. It would suppress your breathing. Um, in fact, it was one of the favorite uh, method of suicide. You know, people take it as a kind of painless way to go. And then what changed was the Columbian exchange. When the European colonists uh, colonized South America, 
and they came to Southeast Asia, particularly Portuguese and Spanish. They introduced tobaccos from the Americas to Asia, you know, to play uh, Spanish, introduced it to the Philippines and Portuguese to uh, Malacca, present day Malaysia. And later Dutch got in the game, you know, Dutch took over the present day Indonesia and established its own colony over there. It's in the Dutch colonies that tobacco were mixed with opium. And this is actually quite revolutionary because whereas before, if you take too much opium, you will just kill you straight out. But if you mix opium with tobacco and smoke it, and because a lot of the content was actually burned up in the process, so you will not kill you right away. <laughs> and, and smoking tobacco and uh, smoking opium kind of went hand in hand in all the European colonies in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, in the in you know present day Indonesia, etc. And all these places already have a large uh, member of Chinese diaspora who brought this back to China. So, um, so this was introduced to China in like the 18th century. And, but the opium itself is not grown in China. It's actually grown outside of China and has to be... In India, for example. Yes, yes. And this is where British came in because <laughs> uh, the British, uh, they would start to colonize in, in India in the 18th century. And pretty soon they uh, gain a large swath of India. And what the British East India Company would do is that they for, they had a opium farmers, crops like rice, wheat, etc. They made the Indian opium. And, you know, and they can't, the, the Indian farmers can't, just sell the opium freely. They have to sell it back to the British East India Company, and and then the British East India Company they would um, license it. Uh, you know, through their opium monopoly, they will sell the opium back to individual traders to carry them into China because they the British want plausible deniability. They say, oh, we venerable uh, British East India <laughs> Company, we don't we don't actually involve in the opium trade. We just create a marketplace for people to trade. But <laughs> it's totally bogus. I mean, they they have an opium monopoly. Their they, their policy of making Indian farmers switch into opium crop is actually causing chronic famine. In India, because they, you know, instead of growing rice, the staples, now they're growing opium and they have to sell it to the British India company at an artificially uh, low price. Oh. And employees, they would do kind of all kind of smoke and mirrors to hide the fact that they're doing opium smuggling. So instead of the opium is still carried on the British East India company ships, but Instead, the, the individual parcels will be parceled out and sold to employees of British East India Company clerks. So, for example, who would become a pretty famous opium smuggler is uh, William Jardine. He started as a sergeant under the British East India Company. And he, as an employee of the East India Company, he will get his own cargo space on the East India Company ships. And this cargo space will use to store opium, like his allotment of the opium. And then he will sell to China and, and, and sell them. And, you know, opium was illegal in China because pretty soon 
the Chinese official realizes they they're they're facing an opioid crisis, and and the addiction was rampant. Initially, the opium smoking was um, it was kind of luxury sport. It was only by the elite who took opium uh, as a conspicuous consumption, because opium before was expensive. It has to be imported from abroad. What the British did is they through their um, mass planting of opium in India. And through their opium monopoly, they started to ship increasing amount of uh, amount of opium in China that depressed the prices enough that it became affordable for common people. Uh, and so that's when the opium crisis in China became a societal, a whole societal problem. When even common laborers were uh, taking to opium addiction, and so it was it was explicitly banned. In China, but the British smugglers would find a way around that. They will bribe the corrupt Chinese officials.、Uh, they work with local Chinese gangs to push their opium. Like they were literally handing out free samples of opium <laughs> to the. Wow. Yes, they they will get handing out free samples of opium to get people hooked. And you know, once once that you know once the addiction kicks in, you know, it's just. Free flow of silver into the British pockets. They would have all these offshore、um, islands because the British,、um, the foreign presence in China was、uh, curtailed,、uh, was limited. Only port of China was open for trade is、uh, the port city of Canton, today's Guangzhou. And the British、uh, and the other Dutch and the other European traders, they were allowed to set up their factories in a tiny strip of enclave in Guangzhou. But they they can only stay six months.、Um, you know, after six months, they are required to leave, and they have to sail up the well. They have to sail out the Pearl River to go to the Portuguese colony of Macau. Yeah, because Portuguese managed to get a foothold in Macau、um, uh, just、uh, like fifty years earlier,、uh, maybe even a hundred years earlier. Portuguese had been established in Macau for a while. So first, British wasn't very happy because they could only conduct business in the city of of Canton. They, whereas they want to sell opium to all of China, right? And they want to do it openly. Um, so that that's a source of friction.、Uh, you know, one of the reason why British resort to opium is their product was, you know, first they came to China、uh, to trade, but pretty fast they find out their product is not competitive.、Um, you know, they will bring stuff like、um, British, <laughs> like wools, like British wool and、uh, woven heavy woolen clothes. To sell in the tropical city of Guangzhou, you know, of course nobody's gonna buy that. And the only few products that they would be able to sell in China is actually Indian textiles. But the British destroyed the Indian artisan textile market themselves later during the Industrial Revolution. But on the other hand, the British they have acquired taste for tea, so annually they would import a lot of tea from China. A lot of people don't realize this, but the dur- during the Boston Tea Party, the tea that was dumped into the Boston Harbor, it was from the Br-、uh, British East India Company, and it was shipped from the Chinese port city of Xiamen. Back then, it was known as Amoy. And but to pay for the tea, the British have to pay with hard currency.、Um, they have to pay with silver, like gold or silver. 
yeah, have to pay with silver. So there was a large amount of silver that was actually flowed in into China since the the, the trade with the European uh, have started in the in the 17th and 18th century. Um, in fact, the Spanish colonization of South America were made viable because of silver mines they discovered in Bolivia and Peru and Mexico. And Argentina, because Argentina means land of the silver. Yes. And it just so happened that China around that time uh, went into, basically went on silver standard because um, before the, the, the previous Chinese government printed too much money and it caused huge inflation. So people switched to silver. But uh, the silver supply in China itself was limited because Chinese economy back then was the world's number one economy. You require a lot of silver. Uh, So you start to import silver from places like Japan and South America. There was a Spanish colony of the Philippines, for example. There was a Manila galleon trade where Spanish silvers from South America would get loaded up on galleon ships in Mexican port of Acapulco, and they would cross the Pacific annually to land in Manila, where silver was traded for Chinese goods like soap, tea, etc. And the British, when they enter the trade, they will have to buy silver from the Spanish and to use that to pay for tea. But very soon they they hit the the magical formula of just sell drugs to to the Chinese. You know that's the opium, and that was to drain the silver. Yes, because uh, British ran a trade deficit with China prior to the their massive operation of uh, opium smuggling, and some estimate fifty percent of the silver mine in the South Americas. Uh, from the 18th and 19th century ended up in China. So half of the silver in Spanish America ended up going to China. And But British uh, just decided, okay, you know what? We're just going to sell drugs. And uh, the opium was a way to, to go. And through the opium trade, British were able to reverse the silver flow. So before where silver was flowing across the Pacific into China, now the silver is flowing from China into the coffers of British East India Company. And it's not just the British that was involved in the opium trade. It's also Americans. I used to live in in New York, and there's a little place in Queens called Astoria, named after, I forgot, J. Astor. Yes. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. How, How did he make his money? Okay, back then, during the founding, around the time of founding of the United States, uh, most of the so-called New England old money was made in the opium fortune. We talk about the four, you know, you already mentioned Astor. There's also the Forbes family. And these merchants, Boston merchants, they will travel to the port of Canton in China, where they hooked up with a, with a local Chinese merchant Hokwa and and Hokwa used Americans as his kind of proxy because he he saw the British was making a killing in the drug trade and he himself wanted to get into the trade but the Chinese at that time Chinese government forbid going abroad you know a lot of the Chinese merchants they were not allowed to to go abroad in ocean going ships so he decided to use Americans as his proxy he would send the Americans to Turkey 
to purchase Turkish opium, you know, at that time was still outside of the control of the British uh, because it was under Ottoman Empire. And then the Americans will will transport uh, opium back to China from Turkey. And one time during the during the famine in Guangzhou, he had the Americans uh, traders to hide the opium under bags of rice. So <laughs> ostensibly, the Americans were importing rice, <laughs> but they're actually uh, smuggling opium. So oh, the Americans control about fifteen percent of the opium market in China. Um, one of the, the among the Americans who made a fortune is John Forbes. He like so the you know he, many of his descendants. The Forbes magazine, right? Yes, and the and the John Forbes Carey is a descendant of John Forbes. Oh! I did not know that. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, it's kind of funny because a few weeks ago, we had somebody here to talk to us about Ruth Payne and the JFK assassination. And this lady sheltered what's it, uh, uh, J- uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's wife in her house for a long time. And she and her husband is also related to the Forbes family. And also connected to the CIA somehow. <laughs> yeah, and there's also FDR's grandfather, uh, Warren Delano. You know, FDR. The D in the FDR is stands for Delano. It's it's a name after his grandfather, Warren Delano, who made his fortune uh, in China in opium smuggling. They actually have a nice mansion up in the hills in the Victoria Peak in Hong Kong. And FDR, he was born with silver spoon. You know, he 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 was able to devote himself to politics because you know his grandfather's fortune, and uh, you know that fortune was made through opium smuggling. A lot of the elite educational institutions on the East Coast, like Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton, etc., they all were founded <laughs> with endowment from all these opium smuggling families. That's funny because the other half of the families that gave them endowment were slave trading families. <laughs> yes, that's how America was founded. Yeah, you know, through drugs and slaves. Drugs and slaves. Yeah, because at that time China was the world's largest economy. In fact, the the reason the U.S. made a specific policy to go trade with China right after independence because they were being kicked out of the British Empire's trading system, and so they thought. Um, you know, they they try to export everything to China, like everything from American ginseng to seal fur. You know, they they they, they the American sailing ships were sailing to the South Americas and Pacific Northwest. Uh, they kill like millions of fur seals in order to export the pelts to China. Almost at you know, almost wipe out the seal population at the time. But it, so in the end, they settle on opium <laughs> because that it's much easier to make make money through drugs, and and of course it became a big problem in China. So the Chinese Imperial Court banned it. The first several bans weren't very effective because a lot of the Chinese local officials were in the pay, <laughs> were paid off by a British East India Company to look the other way. So in the 1830s. Finally, um, uh, uh, Emperor Daoguang sent in his uh, one of his ministers, Lin Zexu, to Guangzhou, specifically put a stop to the opium trade. And Lin Zexu is known for being a very upright, honest official. 
And when he arrived in the city, he also realized the level of collusions the British uh, had with like the the underground Chinese gangs and the local officials. So he decided to clean up, and he issued a edict that says, you know, you you are allowed welcome to come here to trade, but you have to give up opium smuggling. Uh, he gave gave them a timetable where they have to give up all their opium inventory that's currently stored in the warehouses in Guangzhou. And he stopped the trade with Britain completely until the British opium merchant agreed to uh, turn over the opium. I was going to ask if the British turned over their opium or did they kind of start a war around that time? <laughs> okay, so right now the, the British merchants are very indignant because they felt like their rights had been impinged on. There was an impasse, and the British commissioner at the time, uh, he thought, okay, the only way we're going to get around this impasse, because uh, at the time, the Americans, they were more clever. They, they very cleverly, they, they turned over their opium right away to, in order to continue to trade in China. But the, the trade with Britain was completely stopped. And so the British commissioner assigned for this task, he promised the opium uh, merchant that they will be reimbursed, you know, if they just turn over the opium right now to get over the crisis. And in the meantime, one of the largest opium smuggler, uh, the William Jardine that I mentioned earlier, uh, by this, this time he has already gone independent. Uh, he was already independent from the British East India Company. He, he was one of the largest opium smugglers and he traveled to London. He started to buy up newspapers, um, and, and, and he started a media campaign to agitate for war against China. And then he, uh, hobnob with, uh, UK politicians, you know, especially, uh, uh, Lord Palmerston to urge for war with China. There was always a, there was a lively debate in the British parliament about, uh, morality of going to war with China over Opium, basically. You know, everybody knows this is bad, but the pro side says this is our life's blood. You know, this is our main money maker in China, right? Mm-hmm. The war, the wage on China opium uh, war. When I was taught in uh, U.S. textbook in high school, basically say you British want free trade, but what, what they <laughs> fail to mention, you know, what the free trade meant, because for for British, the largest export they have to China was opium. So when they say free trade, they're really talking about free drug trade. <laughs> and and so William Jardine started a media campaign, uh, you know, basically use every possibility to uh, demonize China and Chinese, saying how, how the Chinese are barbaric people, they have barbaric laws. They insulted the dignity of the British, honest British merchants in China. Honest British merchants. Yeah, the British honor must be defended at all costs. You know, we 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 cannot let them uh, trade us like this. And and so you know, he also you know painted Chinese as racist against the Europeans. <laughs> that would have been just very looking at what happened to India. It to be anti-European at that time would have been very wise policy. Yeah, I mean, like because the the, the the British complaint is that Chinese will call them barbarians. But I mean, what they did kind of justified that. I mean, it's, 
And so they, they the 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 uh, while the British merchant in Guangzhou, they eventually they were forced to turn over their opium stockpile. And Lin Zexu had the um, had a public burning of the opium by mixing them with lime and, and then flush it down into the Pearl River. So again, you know, William Jardine used that event as this is somehow insult to the British honor. You know, the, the, the British dignity was trampled on. The rights of the British traders were uh, grossly violated. With a very narrow margin, uh, you must be said there was some opposition. You know, the, at the time, like the Christianity was a big thing among uh, British expansion. So, so on one hand, the the missionaries in China, their side gig is to acting as translators for these uh, British opium smuggler. But at the same time, they also recognize, you know, smuggling drug is immoral. So there was a, a lively debate in the British Parliament. And of course, in the end, the money wins out. Uh, the British Parliament approved the war to go um, with China. So they sent in ships from British India, uh, loaded with thousands of, of soldiers. Uh, they landed in the in the poor city of Guangzhou and start. Uh, they first start blockading, and then they um, they they start attacking. But they couldn't make too much headway. So at this time, we're talking about 1839. So by this time, Britain has already completed the first industrialization. Uh, e- England is the first nation in the world to industrialize, and it gave them a tremendous edge uh, around all the other competitors. Well, they also de-industrialized countries like India, L- like they went and destroyed our earth factories. Um, so if you read William Darpumple's The Anarchy, they talk about how India had very advanced textile factories under Jahangir. But then when the British came, the first thing they did was destroy all our factories. So they kind of got their advanced industrial monopoly by destroying all their competitors. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I mean, that's that's how the Europe, I mean, the, the, the whole history of European colonization, some Western revisionist historian trying to say, oh, this is because the triumph of institutions of, you know, superiority of the, the, the British institutions. But if you look at what really uh, that got the Europeans where they were is their military is is through their their um uh, that that's the one area where they did enjoy um advantage but you know during the the trade without coercion of military force you know they they were actually not competitive against uh, chinese indian arab traders but you know they had guns <laughs> they had position of guns and they did have a edge in the military sphere so through their um through violence you know they got where they are and yeah i mean they literally cut off thumbs of weavers in india in order to like stop the indian textile industry flat <laughs> exactly so at this time there was a big technological gap between china and britain because british would send steam engine gunboats uh you know one of its the first uh, steam engine gunboats nemesis sailed up the um, Yangtze River and um, Pearl River and start bombarding Chinese coastal towns. And they, they were actually, in a way, they're uh, also very quick to adopt the technology from the conquered people because they, they um, British would encounter rockets during 
the conquest of India. Yeah, they got the rackets from uh, this is from my state, from Tipu Sultan. And what's really funny is when you hear the American national anthem that goes, when the rockets read something, those rockets came from Tipu Sultan's arsenal. <laughs> yes, yes. So when the when the British engaged in the war with, uh, against the Mysore in in southern India, they quickly realized, uh, uh, you know, the powerful or uh, uh, the usefulness of the rockets in military um, uh, applications. So they adapted. And and now they're using rock. They're launching rockets from the British steamship Nemesis against the Chinese coastal towns during the Opium War. And by that time, the Chinese troops were they were still using matchlock muskets. You know, ma- matchlock muskets means you you must have a lit fuse at all time to be able to light a fuse on your gun, and you have to have. You know, they're still using black gunpowder. Um, so, and the British already have flintlocks. So it, it, it was no competition. Uh, I mean, they, they were very quickly destroying the, the, the Chinese military, which hasn't fought a war in over a hundred years. Uh, you know, China was enjoying like a hundred years, a century of peace prior to the Opium War. So there wasn't, there wasn't any ships. They dominated the, the, the sea. Um, um, and then they, they, were, they were quickly destroy whatever the Chinese Navy had. Uh, in its coastal towns, when they but they couldn't make any headway in Guangzhou because, despite their military advantage and their their their, their victories in, in naval battles, Lin Zexu, the governor uh, Lin Zexu, refused to budge. So they decided they're going to apply pressure by raiding other Chinese uh, coastal towns. So they sail up the south from South China Sea and bombarding the Chinese coastal town as they go. They went up to the mouth of Yangtze River uh, near Shanghai. Um, they took over the Zosan Islands and made Zosan Islands like a big their headquarter for for opium smuggling. And because they they have certain familiarity with the, the Chinese coast already through their collusion with the Chinese underworld, the uh, the different uh, opium smuggling gangs uh, with these collaborators. They sail up the Yangtze River, um, you know, destroys the Chinese coastal defense that they went. And they sail up the Yangtze to Chinese city of Nanjing. Um, ah. And that became very serious because Nanjing is one of the biggest Chinese city in the South at the time. And more importantly, they threatened to cut off the north-south traffic at the Grand Canal. Because at that time, most of the Chinese shipping wasn't ocean going uh, along the coast. It's, it's on the, is internal through the Grand Canal to sail from Nanjing to Beijing. And Beijing, uh, in 1839 has more than a million population, but the plains around Beijing is dry and they cannot feed the population, the urban population in Beijing. So rice have to be shipped from the rice-producing region in the south, in the, from the Yangtze de- the Delta, and sails through the Grand Canal to, be- to feed Beijing. So what the British Navy did is they blockaded the area around Nanjing, 
um, threatened to cut off the, the 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 rice shipment from uh, from the south to Beijing, and and basically to starve the, the 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 Beijing population. And at that point, the Chinese capitulated. The, the Chinese court finally capitulated. That agreed to the British demands. Um, this is the first Opium War. As a result. Uh, China had to pay a large war indemnity to Britain. Uh, a large amount of silver have to be paid to Britain for the privilege of being invaded. And they have to cede the island of Hong Kong. I have a quick question. Um, the word gunboat diplomacy comes from this time. So what does that mean? Well, gunboat diplomacy just means if the uh, if the European power don't get their way, you know, they will send in their, literally send their gunboats to blast you. Ah, so it's not diplomacy at all. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now they're signing the Treaty of Nanking, right? Yeah, and and under the terms of Treaty of Nanjing, this is in 1842. So the war actually lasted three years, from 1839 to 1842. In during the during the time, British already seized the island of Hong Kong. They also seized the island of Zhousan, turning them into opium transshipment centers. So now, around this time, they're getting the control of Hong Kong. What was in the treaty and what kind of control did they get over Hong Kong? Right. So the island of Hong Kong was ceded to Britain uh, in perpetuity. So the the entire island of Hong Kong was um, Britain just forced China to give up the entire island to the British. And, you know, at that time, the British actually wasn't very happy because they wanted uh, (laughs) they wanted. Uh, uh, the Zhousan Island, which would have been closer to Shanghai and the mouth of the the Yangtze River, um, so they felt they settled they settled for for this rock in the Hong Kong Island. Uh, Hong so Hong Kong became a British Crown Colony, and uh, and then China also opened. As I said before, only foreign trade was allowed in Canton in, in the modern city of Guangzhou, and Britain asked for five additional treaty ports to be open. So this will be Shanghai, Shanghai, Limbo, Fuzhou, Xiamen. Xiamen is Amoy, where the Boston RDT came from. And uh, and also Canton. You know, Canton was also included. But on the, in those treaty ports, British would have special privileges. So this will be the creation of so-called foreign concessions. So now uh, British would have a piece of land in these different cities where Chinese laws does not apply. So it's like a little colony inside of these cities. Yes, yes. So, so this is very extreme in Shanghai because in Shanghai, you know, pretty soon other imperial powers will get in the act. You know, France and then even United States piggyback on the British victory. So they all got their own concessions in Shanghai. So in Shanghai, there was a British concession, a French concession. American concession and much later even Japanese concession and Russian concession. And the British and the American concession eventually merged into the international settlement of Shanghai. And so Shanghai is basically there's a Chinatown in Shanghai. That that's a situation. That that was a situation. Wow. You know, like the Chinese were restricted to the Chinese city, uh, you know, where the the Chinese law would continue to apply, but the the during uh, the rest of the European concessions, 
you know, uh, it's where the British American laws, uh, the French laws would apply. It will be Britain actually imported Sikh police from British India to police their Shanghai concessions. Crazy. Yeah. The, the, and, and then the, um, and not just in the treaty ports, but in other parts of China, the foreigners will exempt from the Chinese laws. This is called the extraterritoriality. Um, you know, Chinese court cannot sentence a British subject. This reminds me a lot of what is going on in Okinawa in modern day Japan, in that American soldiers can rape a significant amount of people in Okinawa, and there's nothing that the Japanese government can do to them. Yeah, they can only be tried by U.S. military court, you know, if they feel like it. And like this, that, that this is one of the biggest contention in Okinawa, you know, like the, the, the Okinawa residents are tired of them and trying to, you know, time and again, trying to get the U.S. to move their base. But U.S. is there to stay. And the Japanese government is also a, a culprit because they, they don't want the American soldiers on the Japanese mainland. Um, so they stick them in Okinawa because, you know, they never treated Okinawans as kind of, you know, at the same level as the, the Japanese citizens, because Japan annexed the kingdom of uh, Ryokyo back in the 1870s. And and after that, they, they kind of, you know, so so essentially Okinawa status is like it's a double colony of Japan and United States, and they, they're getting the shaft. And then in the in under the but the the British wasn't satisfied with the terms of Treaty of Nanjing because the Chinese had to pay twenty one million dollars to Britain as reparation for destroy opium. Oh my God, I, I'm so uh, angry uh, already. Um, because like 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 the this is on top of everything they're looted from India. Literally, when they raided Tipu Sultan's in Mysore, like his uh, kingdom, they also like stole everything, including his silk underwear. I kid you not, and shipped it back to Britain. So, wow, this is highway robbery. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, and then the Americans and the uh, the French would also sell their combo to China and get the same terms, same treatment. But the British and and the French, they were they weren't satisfied with the terms because opium trade itself was not legalized, still not recognized as legal. Like if basically Chinese authority decided to turn a blind eye, but it's still illegal under the Chinese law. So in order to make opium smuggling a fully legal trade in China, uh, and also they, they, they are no longer happy or restricted to the five treaty ports. They want all of China to be opened up to opium traffic. This is when the second opium war happened okay um i have a before we jump into the second opium war i have a quick question um the china uh, people in china often refer to this time period as a century of humiliation i kind of understand why but can you explain a little bit about that well yeah i mean basically you as, as a chinese person at this time you're a second class citizen in your own country in the so, for example, in the treaty ports of Shanghai, um, people who watch Bruce Lee movies, uh, the, the, the I think it's a few, the Fist of Fury. Um, there will, there's a very famous scene where uh, Bruce Lee traveled to Shanghai and he saw a sign outside this park that says Chinese and dogs not allowed. 
and he was so mad, so angry. He 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 jumped up and kicked the sign. So there's some there's some Western historians. They they went out trying to disapprove this uh, as the urban myth. But what they discovered was there was a sign at the park in Shanghai. What it says is this park is reserved for Europeans only. <laughs> Dogs not allowed. So basically, the same thing. They they just yes. Basically, it's the same thing. You as a Chinese person, you are not allowed to enter into a park reserved for Europeans in Shanghai. This is where the humiliation part of century of humiliation come from. But British wasn't happy with the settlement of the first Opium War. You know, they he felt he only got a, a, a island of Hong Kong and, and only pay, got paid twenty one million dollars, and the the opium trade still not fully legalized. So they waited for opportunity to start another war, and and this this opportunity would present themselves as the so called Arrow Incident. So at that time, um, British authority granted all the vassals. Registered in Hong Kong, British registration. So there was a cargo ship called Arrow. It was used by Chinese smugglers to smuggling opium again, uh, and and it was captured by the Chinese authorities. Now this 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 ship was manned by basically the Chinese pirates, and so 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 you know the the, the Chinese authorities you know arrested the crew and 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 have them executed for drug running. Now British use this as an excuse because the, the ship was flying. This is where the human rights violations and China is killing its own citizens comes from. Yes, because they they claim that the Chinese marine pulled the British flag down from the ship, and that is their excuse for war. Because the Chinese authority arrested. Opium smuggling ship that was registered in Hong Kong, you know, run by the the Chinese opium smugglers, executed the the the, the crews, and and because British claimed that ship was in fact registered in Hong Kong and and supposedly had a British flag, and supposedly the the, the Chinese took down the flag, and and that became the excuse for war, and the the France also joined in. So um, the Europeans at the time, there is there. They're not just pushing drugs, but they're also trying to push religion. Now, now, proselytizing is forbidden in China at the time. Uh, like the, uh, the the treaty port, it was allowed in these treaty ports, but you are not allowed to go other parts of China and proselytize to the local population. But a French uh, priest, you know, he decided to ignore the Chinese regulation, and he started. Uh, he went from Vietnam into China in Southwest, and then. He got in trouble with the locals who didn't like what they were doing, and he was killed. And then France then used that opportunity to to ally with uh, British, and they formed the uh, Anglo-French Joint Expeditionary Force, and and they used the Hong Kong as a base, you know, for the fleet gathered in Hong Kong, and then they sail up the co- Chinese coast. Um, this time, they will sail directly to Beijing. And they will land uh, their troops in the in the poor city of Tianjin um, again. What year was this? Eighteen fifty six. Okay, eighteen fifty six. Okay, so they use Hong Kong as a launching pad for their attack on China, right? Yep, yep. And uh, they, so they they first attack they first attack Guangzhou in the south in the Pearl River. The capture. This is the first time the British managed to enter Guangzhou, uh, and. 
they captured the governor of of Guangzhou, but the governor of Guangzhou refused to sign any treaties, uh, claim he doesn't have authority. So they uh, arrested him and uh, sent him to uh, s- uh, arrest and put him in jail in India to British India, and and where the the governor himself he starved himself to death. So seeing that capturing Guangzhou does not force the China to capitulate, they decide to sail their fleet north along the Chinese coast to invade uh, and land at the the poor city of Tianjin. And then again, you know, the 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 there were battles fought between um, the, the 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 joint Anglo-French force and the Chinese. Around this time, Britain also got a little busy in India because it was the Great Indian Mutiny. So how did that affect this war? Yes. So actually, this is right immediately after the Great Indian Mutiny. At this time, you know, British was actually quite strong. So so even they already have a large military buildup in India to put down the, the Indian uprising. As soon as they put down the Indian uprising, they loaded the soldiers onto ships, sailed them through, uh, up the South China Sea to Hong Kong. And then from Hong Kong, they uh, it's the, the same people that put down the, the Indian mutiny that now is engaging in the Second Opium War, basically. Aha, that makes sense. And just for people who were engaged in the Indian mutiny, they got sent abroad, like to Trinidad and uh, Guyana as slaves, basically, as punishment. And they were never allowed to come back. Millions. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's there always, you know, it, it's very similar, actually, to, uh, at the time, what's called the Chinese coolie trade. Um, ah, what it, is that? This is around the time slavery was starting to getting abolished in a lot of the Latin American countries. But there was still a demand for docile labor force right so they, they they can't import slaves from africa anymore um so this is where the 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 coolie trade came from they they will have these uh the british and dutch traders they will set up shopping hong kong and they will lure chinese peasants with the promise of jobs overseas in fact i talk about this when i talk about bruce lee's family history um so one of bruce lee's well not his direct ancestor but this Dutch trader, he set up shop in Hong Kong, and his main business was shipping these uh, these Chinese laborers to the Dutch Guyana in South America uh, to to work as indenture servants, basically. And these Chinese coolies were they were exploited horribly. You know, they they signed up because they were expecting getting paid good wages. But in, in fact, once they are, get on the boat, you know, all the documents are taken away from them. They they are virtual slaves. And this person, the Dutch trader that was uh, running this business out of Hong Kong, he had a local Chinese mistress and had many children by her. And then he left, but eventually he left Hong Kong and went to marry a a daughter of a San Francisco real estate developer. And eventually they all immigrated to London. He became a, a British citizen. But the, the, the mistress that he left behind and the children he left behind, one of them was Robert Hotong. Robert Hotong is a grand uncle of Bruce Lee. He's a, he's a brother, older brother to Bruce Lee's grandfather. Uh, I didn't realize that Bruce Lee was a little bit white. <laughs> Uh, 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 he's a quarter. He's a quarter because his grandfather is actually full, fully Chinese. So I guess 
his great grand like the his great grandmother wasn't exclusive to the to that Dutch trader uh, because his his grand uncle Robert Hutong is is half is is a Eurasian but uh, but Bruce Lee's uh, grand maternal grandfather is is fully Chinese but then he had a white Russian mistress in Shanghai um, and that's where Bruce Lee's mother came from. Just clarifying, white Russian, as in from the white armies of Russia, or yeah, I seen I seen the, the the white Russian refugees that fled the Russian Civil War, and and many of them ended up in Hong Kong. Let me just clarify: white Russians were czarists; they were uh, wealthy, and and a lot of them were very good at putting down rebellions. So they were used after the war. A lot of countries use them as basically mercenaries <laughs> yeah yeah they they actually would play that role in the, in the chinese uh, in the in the chinese warlord by different chinese warlords as well and so bruce lee grandfather had a white russian mistress in shanghai and then he had uh, her their children adopted by one of his other mistress and and, and that's that's bruce lee's mom but uh, so bruce lee's mom actually grew up very wealthy uh, grew up in a mansion on uh, in, Shang- in in Hong Kong, but she decided to elope with a very handsome Cantonese opera actor. <laughs> got disowned by her family, <laughs> yeah. So that's how uh, the Bruce Lee's origin story. Uh, so he is a quarter. He's a quarter white, um, one fourth. Yeah, it's funny because in the U.S., when we think of Bruce Lee, we think when we think of a Chinese. Like he's typifies the typical Chinese person in our minds in the U.S. because of all the movies he's acted in, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he himself, he, he, of course, he, he identifies as, as Chinese. And he's uh, so anyway, so let's go back to the Opium War. OK, well, we should do another episode not, not in the future about Bruce Lee, too. Yes, <laughs> yes, can. I would love to okay. do that. I would love to do okay. that. Okay, here's the deal. For the cost of one box of tea, $5, we'll ship you some opium. History to your inbox. And have Carl back to discuss Bruce Lee, because that sounds rad. So go to historically.substack.com today and subscribe. Also, check out our YouTube channel for Lit with Lennon on Mondays at 12 p.m. Eastern. And have a fireside chat on Sundays at 12.30 on our call-in show. It is what is to be done. Yeah, so in 1856, the, the Britain, after the capture Guangzhou, that was not enough. So they decided to bring more pressure. They, they sail up to the port of Tianjin, just outside of Beijing, where they defeated the, the, the Chinese coastal um, defense. They actually suffered an initial defeat. The fleet, uh, the initial encounter, they actually, several ships got sunk. Actually, you know, because the, the technological gap is too great. They overcome the Chinese defenders. They fought a war just outside of Beijing where uh, the, the Qing court, they send in their last remnant force uh, led by the Mongol prince, Zheng uh, Li Qing. But, the, but his Mongol forces was defeated because they were poorly equipped. They, they were still, they, they, they were, they, they had muskets and bows and arrows, you know, against British and French artillery. At this time, Britain decides to send an envoy to negotiate with the Chinese side. But the Mongol prince, Zheng Lixin, he was so mad at the defeat. You know, he had the British uh, envoy put to death. And 
now the British is out for revenge. So they went march on Beijing. They took the sack Beijing. The Chinese emperor fled the palace. Now、uh, the British commander Lord Elgin. Now this Lord Elgin is not the Elgin Senior. There's another Lord Elgin who basically looted all the all the、uh, marbles, all the Parthenon marbles from Greece, all the statue that. That Lord Elgin. That oh, don't that Elgin. Okay, 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 okay. Now I know. Okay,、uh, they're the same family. They're the same family. That that was El- Lord Elgin the Elder. Now this is his son. He's looting a different place of the world. Okay. Yes, his son, the Lord Elgin the Younger. He now he's commanding the British forces in China in possession of the Chinese capital Beijing. He decided to teach Chinese a lesson, you know, for executing the British envoy. So he picked on the Summer Palace, and, and he, 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 in his diary, he wrote, "He's like this is a very regrettable decision I have to make because the the Summer Palace is really a, a beautiful place, but we have to we have to make the sacrifice because we need to teach Chinese a lesson they would not easily forget." So he. First, he,、uh, the British and the, the French troops thoroughly looted the, the the Summer Palace, and this is why today you can travel to the British Museum or the, the French Museum in Paris and see all these priceless treasures of like thousand year old Chinese artifacts that previously what was stored in the in the Imperial Palace that the British burned down, and so so. After the looting, after three days looting, they decide to burn down the palace,、uh, the Summer Palace, to teach the Chinese.、Uh, and the ruin of Sum- Summer Palace still stands in Beijing, and now now it's like a tourist attraction.、Uh, people people can go and visit. I have a joke for you. Why are the pyramids still in Egypt? Oh, <laughs> because it's too big to move to British Museum. Exactly, that's a joke. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Wow, I did not realize that was the same Elgin. I did not connect the two. Yeah, yeah, the the it's the same family. And then they after they burned down the Summer Palace, this is where the 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 Treaty of Beijing come from. Oh, you forgot one thing. Um, they also looted uh paintings from the Song Dynasty、uh, that around that time, and that ended up in Boston. Yes, yes. I mean, there, there's so much looting from China in the last hundred years. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like in in Toronto, there's like a there's a mu、uh, Toronto or Ottawa.、Uh, I think it's Toronto. There's a museum of a Chinese Ming Dynasty general's tomb. They moved the whole tomb to a museum in Canada. I mean, that's that's, that's insane. That's that. Yeah, that's the, the level of looting of Chinese artifacts was. Uh, kind of on the level of ridiculous. Okay, and w- w- now that you mentioned the word looting, that is one of the first words that came from Hindi to the English lexicon. The Hindi word is lutna, which means to steal. <laughs> oh yes, yes, and、uh, this is all like a legacy of、uh, British imperialism. So we are we are still using their language to do this yes, podcast. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and.、Uh, And so, British finally got what they want, which is a fully legalization of the opium trade and exemption of British goods from the tariffs. So, so now not only they get to ship opium freely from China, the Chinese government cannot tax them. <laughs> so, 
And and the, the Chinese custom from Second Opium War onward was controlled by British, was controlled and staffed by the British. So they got to control what came in and out of China. Yes, <laughs> I got. Yes, yes. I mean, this is this is now you you see the reason why China called this time the century of humiliation, and the, the further expanded the treaty ports, and but this was. Still not enough because um, uh, you know if, uh, eventually they 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 had all the Chinese coastal cities opened up and they, the British decided to enlarge their holding of Hong Kong. So before they had had the island of Hong Kong as a British crown colony, and now British uh, Britain demanded China to seize the peninsula opposite of island of Hong Kong. This is the uh, uh, the the district of the Kowloon Peninsula. Opposite of Hong Kong, that was ceded to Britain. So Hong Kong got enlarged, and the so-called freedom of religion was established. Uh, a clause was inserted, so though now the foreign priest can have freedom of movement in China to proselytize. They can go anywhere inside China. No longer to allow in the tre- uh, restricted to the treaty ports, and British ships. Are allowed to carry indentured Chinese to America. This is where I talk about the Chinese coolie trades. So they, you know, the Chinese uh, labor were suckered into signing up for long uh, year-long contract and getting loaded in ships and shipped to to different co- European colonies around the world. And you know, in Cantonese, this they call it. Selling the the piglets, you know, they're comparing these these labors who are being sold as as being sold as piglets, and then they also had to pay. China also had to pay Britain and France a large amount of war indemnity again, a large amount of silver for to pay for the privilege of uh, of having them coming and burning down their summer palace. My and, God, and uh, and it wasn't just um, and, and so this is. This is really the <laughs> really a bad time for for China. It was defeat after defeat, uh, not just w- one opium war, but two opium wars. But even even that, Britain was not entirely happy because now they got all the coastal Chinese cities opened up. So later in the 19th century, Britain further asked forced China to open all the ports along the Yangtze River. So my hometown, Chongqing. Which is about two thousand kilometers up the Yangtze River from the coast was made into a treaty port. You know, a city of Wuhan had its own British concessions, and and wow, and, and, that's far away from the coast. Yes, yes, Wuhan, right in the middle of China, now have different foreign concessions. So this is the broad outline of the two Opium Wars. Is there a third one? No, no, no. The, this is uh, so so. Um, and something related to America, I wanted to mention as the end of the opium, second opium war and, and treaty of Beijing is that um, because the British ship now the foreign ships can take indentured Chinese uh, labor abroad, and that would let the the U.S. railroad barons to import Chinese labor to California to build the rail transcontinental railroad. Yes, this is as a result of the second opium war. Okay, so now can we talk a little bit about how the opium affected the Chinese population? Like, approximately how many people became users in China? 
Yeah, I mean, there's various estimate, uh, many by um, foreign missionaries. Some estimate like 40% of the Chinese adult population. I even see higher estimate, like uh, there was a, so the German traveler who coined the term, the Silk Road, he is, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, his name is, uh, he's an uncle of the Red Baron. The, the World War One ace in uh, from Germany. Uh, his, what, what's his? Oh, Ferdinand von Richthofen. Okay, Ferdinand von, von Richthofen. He's a he's a uncle of the Manfred von Richthofen, the the famous Red Baron, the Ger- German ace in World War One. He traveled to China in the aftermath of. The Second Opium War. Um, he was in China from 1860s, and I, I just recently read, come across one of the memoir where he talked about his visit to the Chinese northern Chinese province of Sanxi. He said, you know, eight years before he came to uh, the opium arrived about eight years before his visit to Sanxi. So, so right around the time end of the Second Opium War, and he estimated. About 90% of the adult male in the Sanxi province is addicted to opium. 90% of the adult male population. And, and that's pretty insane. And, and he said also, like, this is not, he also saw many women, you know, also smoking. You know, it's not just limited to, to, to it's not just a male, male consumption. And and he also mentioned that in Sanxi, unlike in other uh, like southern China, Sanxi this opium addiction spread through the entire society. So even the common laborers will use opium to dull their pain. And because because one of the side effects of opium is like it makes you forget hunger. Ah. Yes. Yes. Um, and 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 because. So this is kind of the, so you have all these emaciate, you know, people can maybe go, like this is around the time also the pictures start to, photographs start to be developed around the second Opium War, 1860. Uh, and, and you have this, so pictures of all these very emaciated Chinese masses start to emerge in the West, you know, a result of the opium addiction. I can only tell a personal anecdotal story. You know, my grandfather, my my grandfather on my mother's side, so he was actually born from a Chinese gentry family, um, a small landlord family. So he, when he was born, the family was comfortable. He, you know, he had private tutors. But before he became a teenager, his second oldest brother, you know, came to take it, taken over the family business. But he became an opium addict. And he smoked the opium. Uh, he smoked the family fortune away. So overnight, my grandfather, from a son of landlord, to became a proletariat. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they, he 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 had to, um, you know, he growing up, he had to do all kind of odds and end job. You know, he 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 peddled vegetables in the market. He he apprenticed to to a chef. He did everything, you know, eventually he, he, but, but luckily, you know, when he was young, he was already taught how to read. And, and so later he, he continued his education. And so he was able to get himself educated, but this is just, you know, from my own family history, I know about this, um, you know, how opium destroys families. 
this is just my personal family history that connects how the 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 effects, the pernicious effects of opium on the Chinese society. You know, is how the opium destroys families. And by the time my grandparents on both sides of the family, my grandparents were living. You know, China was fully in decline at one point. Before the Opium War, China was the world's largest economy, and and that was totally destroyed. Uh, the economic economy was totally devastated. With all the silvers drained out of the country, well, uh, much of the working population is now addicted to opium, and and this is w- another reason why uh, you know is is a sharp contrast in how the Europeans would describe China from like the 17th century to the 18th century. Like in the 17th century, there's still um, the European travelers to China describe China as a, as a prosperous, wealthy place. And, and that, that's what drove the Europeans to seek a trade route to China. But by 19th century, China society has been utterly destroyed through the different uh, predations by the imperialist powers. And and this is, this is also, this is kind of the image of China and Chinese at that most stuck in the Western imagination today. I mean, people, people until recently, I think at least until 2008 Olympics, most people's mental image of China, I would say, in the, at least in the United States, is still stuck in the 19th century. Uh, but of course, now with, with the Olympics, things have, uh, people's perception have changed somewhat. Well, um, one of the physicians who, um, Dr. Allen, um, uh, let me just read what he said about the opium trade. Um, he visited China and he was, his name is Dr. William Allen, I think. He said, there is no slavery on earth to be compared with the bondage into which opium casts its victims. Yeah. And the opium problem will plague China until 1949, the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Um, you know, after the communists seized power, one of the first thing they did is they outlaw and banning opium outright. And the curious thing at the time is that United States was sponsoring the remnant KMT troops who escaped from southwestern China into northern Myanmar, into this place now we know as Golden Triangle, to start opium and heroin production over there. And at the time when the heroin and opium were leaking into United States, uh, the, 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 the U.S. narcotic czars back then in 1950s, they were blaming the communists. They, they claimed <laughs> them it was Mao that was increasing the opium production, that, that was flooding the West with opium. In fact, it was the CIA that was setting up the opium-producing base in northern Myanmar. And we see, I mean, even today, you know, you, you still see... The fentanyl lie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, like today we we have opioid crisis in in U.S. and 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 North America, and still people blame China. You know, people are saying it's, it's the Chinese that that's waging an opium war against U.S., which is totally bogus. You know, basically fentanyl, the the chemical precursor to make fentanyl, that is also is an ingredient to make medicine, and it's produced by. Uh, Chinese pharmaceutical factories in China and gangs in in um, in North America in Mexico they would import this, these chemical precursors from China and then they will synthesize into fentanyl in uh, in in places like Mexico and smuggle it across the border into United States 
And this somehow was blamed on China as like a, a, a intentional. Uh, it's basically a problem with the law enforcement within United States, but it's much easier to blame China for it. And 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 it, I I just thought it was kind of grotesque to somehow bl- now blame the opioid crisis in U.S. on China. It's it's especially given the the history of U.S.'s own complicit role in the in the opium smuggling a century ago. Indeed, and we now know from court documents that the Sackler, who are related to the British Queen somehow, I will write about that, but they actually lobbied to release, I forgot the name of this drug, but it's a drug that's highly addictive, but they also, I can't remember the name of this drug, but they also spoke directly to doctors and told them that it was okay to prescribe for little pains, like back pain and uh neck ache as opposed to like before opium was only used inside the hospital when you had surgery or something bad happened. Yep. Yep. I mean, this is, um, yeah, in, in U.S. it's, 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 we're just a country, U.S. is just a country run by oligarchs. I mean, this is the sad truth. And, and, uh, but they tell us, so. Uh, but U.S. is, the, the funny thing is U.S. is, ostensibly exporting democracy across the world when itself is a, it's a, uh, it's a very corrupt oligarchy. Yeah. Um, and how exactly did the post-revolutionary Chinese society clean up the opium problem? Yeah. Um, they forced the opium addict to go cold turkey. <laughs> okay. So after the second opium war, after Britain forced China to legalize opium trade, with the increasing imports of opium into China, the Chinese imperial official thought, okay, well, if you can't fight them, um, at least let us uh, grow opium ourselves so we don't have to import them from the British. So that's when they legalized opium cultivation inside China, which led its own problem because a lot of the most productive fertile land now is producing opium rather than staple crops, which lead more to, to more frequent famine. And so, uh, so by the end of 19th century, uh, China became self-sufficient in uh, opium, uh, in opium production. Uh, and then, in fact, um, gangs in Shanghai uh, in the 1920s and 30s, they would set up heroin factories in, in the Shanghai concessions, and they will have uh, opium being uh, processed into heroin and then <laughs> sell them back to uh to export them to places like San Francisco in the United States. Um and it, it's it, ironically it's a World War II that kind of cut off this uh, source of heroin because Japan occupied most of China and Japan decided to use opium and heroin to finance its own war effort. You know, Japan took over the opium racket during the during its occupation of China and uh, the Japanese authorities control the opium and heroin distribution networks to sell to the Chinese. So this is uh, kind of the history that Chinese people have with uh, with this drug. So by 1949, when the communists finally took power, they just outright banned opium. All the opium, all the opium crops are destroyed. Uh, farmers are encouraged to switch to grow rice and staple crops. And opium addicts are called out into rehabilitation centers where they're made to go cold turkey. And, and this, this is how the, the opium crisis was finally brought to an end 
1949. Wow. So, okay. Um, so they just uh, had to deal with millions of people going cold turkey for a few years. Yes. Yes. While fighting a war. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, because they, they also destroyed the, the, the supply. There was no more. All the formerly opium producing land in China has all been turned into, uh, into uh, producing staple crops. So, so there's no more. And, and, and at that time, you, you also, China was under a Western blockade. So there's no more <laughs> imported opium coming into China either. Uh, yeah. So that was the situation. Wow. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense. I remember Michael Parenti talked about how in the 1930s, factory workers in Shanghai would like work all day and then just like do opium in the evening. And people were just like lying on the streets, all uh, drugged up. Yeah, because, you know, the the working class people actually use opium to dull their pain of of you know to 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 get them through the long day of work and also to dull the the, the hunger pain because when you're when you're on opium you don't feel hungry wow okay so opium is also the opiate of the masses like religion <laughs> it was it was literally the opiate of the masses yeah wow so what british did that was um not innovative but they they dumped a lot of opium so they made it cheap and affordable for all to use right yeah, British just made the whole, they industrialized the whole opium uh, production and, and distribution network. They, they, they brought capitalism into the opium trade. That's what the British did. Wow. And um, around this time, like, I think it was the late 1800s when they also were able to make super strong like heroin out of opium, right? Did how did that affect China? Yeah, first they they uh they refine opium into morphine and they market the opium morphine as a safer alternative, but morphine is still used as a painkiller. But later they 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 made it into heroin even more powerful and then and initially heroin was also marketed as a even safer alternative. And as a children's <laughs> cough syrup to give to your child when he has a cough. Yeah. Yes. And at that time, I mean, like, there's a book I highly recommend. Uh, it's uh, the world, the, the politics of heroin. Um, it was it was uh, published originally back in the 1970s. I think recently it was uh, uh, republished. It talks about the CIA roles in promoting the the heroin trade all across the world, and and it makes a good point. It was like the all the addicts in U.S. had to go through cold turkey in the World War II because all the supply points were cut off, you know, both in Asia and Europe. And but U.S. instead decided to throw their um, support behind all these different narco gangs all across the world because the, because they're anti-communist and 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 then the heroin crisis hit home especially during uh in the aftermath of vietnam war you know when all these hundreds of thousands of american gis are rotating out of vietnam and they're right next to the golden triangle where the opium and heroin factories were cranking out products to sell to the American GIs, and then the, the American GIs will bring their heroin habits back home to U.S. So, yeah, a lot of the U.S. problem is self-inflicted, but in a way, it, it's like it's really because our elite don't really care about us. <laughs> you know, CIA is fine with that. 
Well, two main examples is the one you mentioned in Burma, and then there's Kosovo, which where they literally put this heroin gang in charge of the whole country. Yeah, I mean it's it's really funny how wherever you know U.S. and NATO goes, suddenly there's a boom in opium production. Afghanistan. Exactly. Look at Afghanistan. Like like the, the Myanmar, northern Myanmar. That was that area was. Like the source of ninety percent of the world opium and heroin supply back in you know maybe Vietnam War era, but but when after NATO invasion occupation of Afghanistan, you know Afghanistan became like the main source of uh you know opium and heroin. So how it's funny how that works, you know. Yeah, it's always a co- because what I was I was looking at statistics about a year ago. And it looks like in 2001, like the Taliban, when they came over, like in 1990, came to power in 1996, they banned all opium production. Yes. And then in 2001, after the U.S. invaded, opium skyrocketed. And one of the funniest one is USAID. They don't realize this, but like they show an Afghan farmer, like with his tractor growing crops <laughs> yeah I, I i don't buy that they don't realize this because back in the cold war like usaid funds would go go to build like roads in northern thailand ah. ostensibly to, to facilitate you know like um bringing agricultural products to market but what those roads ended up using is by the kmt remnants in northern myanmar to in cahoots with the thai police who are also in the pay of the cia <laughs> to ship opium and heroin to from northern myanmar through northern thailand uh and, and this was effectively held by this USAID money. So I, I don't quite buy they're as innocent as they claim. <laughs> well, well, one last question. You said that the, during the first opium treaty, uh, Hong Kong was given to the British in perpetuity. How did China get Hong Kong back? Yes. Okay. So after the second opium war, the, 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 the peninsula of Kowloon outside of Hong Kong was also joined the British uh, Hong Kong colony. Then in 1898, 1898, that was a time when all the imperialist power was on a scramble to carve up China. Britain then forced China to lease the so-called new territory, this large swap of land in, in the north of Hong Kong, to lease to British for 99 years. The, the lease expires on 1997. So in the 1980s, the lease is, is about to run out. Uh, Thatcher went to China to negotiate with Deng Xiaoping. Thatcher wants to keep Hong Kong British. And Deng Xiaoping said no. Thatcher then went to the British defense, uh, his defense team and asked them to draft a plan for defending Hong Kong. And they told her it's impossible. I mean, Hong Kong rely all the fresh water supplied to Hong Kong came from mainland. Uh, you know, if, if Chinese just cut off the the, the water, the, Hong Kong would not survive. So the British top brass told Thatcher it's not not possible to defend Hong Kong from China, and and uh, so Thatcher eventually bended and just decided to give all of Hong Kong, not just new territory, but all the Hong Kong Island and Kwailong Peninsula back to China in 1997. That makes sense. Um, We've covered the Hong Kong riots in 2019. We've written articles, which we'll link to. 
But can you quickly explain what in 1997, why did China agree to a one country, two systems policy? Okay, so so when the, the negotiations started in 1980s, there's a lot of fear in Hong Kong, you know, whipped up by the capitalist class, you know, about how the communists is going to confiscate everyone's property, right? And and there is also a fear of capital flight. Actually, around that time, a lot of the wealthy Hong Kongers, they left Hong Kong, they, they went to buy properties in like Vancouver, you know, in Canada and elsewhere as a possible escape route. So there was a, there was a need, the, the Chinese government felt there was a need to assure the, the local Hong Kongers that things will not change drastically. They, the life will go on as, as they have been before. So this was a formulation of one country, two systems, that Hong Kong will keep its own separate system from mainland for 50 years. That's the promise of Deng Xiaoping. And this was basically to assuage fears in Hong Kong so there's not a continuous capital flight from Hong Kong. But but in, in some way, the capital flight still... So one of the wealthy... I, I forgot to mention... Uh, one of the still one of the world's biggest bank, HSBC. Uh, HSBC actually stands for Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporations. HSBC got its start in Hong Kong as a bank to finance the opium dealers. And, and <laughs> that's the origin of HSBC. <laughs> and today it's still one of the you know, world's largest bank. But that's how it got its start. It got its start in the opium opium trade. Wow, that's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, um, and, and William Jardine, he, um, you know, he, him and his far- partner founded the Jardine Matheson, which is still one of the largest company in the world, uh, with most are asset in Hong Kong, but they. In the 80s, they like, reincorporated in like Bermuda or something because <laughs> they're scared. Yeah, they're scared that the, uh, the the Chinese will take away their 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 properties in Hong Kong. Um, and yeah, so 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 I mean, like the, the the legacy of opium war is still with us today. You know, all those people that made their money from opium now they're just richer. <laughs> And they, they want people to forget they like like um, you know I, I know HSBC you know if when they in their company official website they, they don't talk about how they got <laughs> they just talk about oh we, we, we got started in Hong Kong in the 18 you know 50s uh, 1860s but it, 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 why were they in Hong Kong at that time was to finance the opium trade. <laughs> And that makes perfect sense. Um, a lot of the cap, and like I said, in New York, we have Astoria named after Jay. I can't remember his name. Jay Astor, I think. I forgot what his first John, maybe. Is it John Jacob? I don't know. John, I think it's, oh, it's John Jacob Astor. Okay, good. He got all his money from the opium trade and then he bought a lot of properties in Queens. Mm, yes, yes. This is, yeah, a lot of the, New England old money back then, you know, all had their, got their start in the opium trade. You know, John Forbes, when he came back to the United States, he used the, the you know, his opium funds to start an investment bank. And, and you know, he financed a railroad build out from New York to Chicago, you know. So, so in a way, the, the U.S. 
industrialization in U.S. The early industrialization in U.S. was financed with opium money and the slave slave money too. <laughs> that's that's how U.S. got its start. Indeed. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, you have your own podcast, the Silk and Steel podcast. So how do people find it? Um, I it's 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 on Patreon. So just go to patreon.com and search Silk. Uh, the first result should be the Silk and Steel podcast by yours truly. And I m- mostly talk about history, politics, and culture in China and surrounding regions. I'm doing a chronological history of China from, from the very beginning. I already managed to make it to like 608 BC. Wow. <laughs> I also have um, a, a series on the Chinese Civil War. I just cover. I just finished the series covering the Chinese Civil War in Manchuria. Uh, my next series on Chinese Civil War will cover the Chinese Civil War in northern China, which I try to start from the warlord period, from the uh, from the collapse of the Qing Dynasty nineteen eleven to the present, uh, and to the war, to the actual civil war between KMT and the the communists. Um, and, uh, and I, I also have relevant to our episode today. I also have an opium and golden triangle series, uh, talking about how golden triangle got started, you know, with the help of CIA, um, to became at one time world's, uh, main supply base of opium and heroin, um, and, and how that played out during the Vietnam war. Um, so yeah. So please check it out. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I will reach out to you again so we can do our episode on Bruce Lee. And yes. Yeah. Um, and in India, he was very, very popular. It's a shame. And, and, and the way he died, it was strange also. Mm, yeah. And his son, too. The way his son died is also strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a family curse. Yeah. We can talk about we, we yeah let's talk about that we can we can have like a whole episode talking about all about Bruce Lee that would be great okay thank you so much for joining us and um be sure to check out uh, Carl's podcast it's one of my favorites sometimes I wish I could just uh, have him here all the time <laughs> <laughs> welcome invite me back you know I love to talk okay thank you so much um have a great rest of the day wait what time is it over there in indonesia it's uh middle of the day it's uh it, actually it's uh 4 30 p.m right now it's in the afternoon okay well have a good evening and we'll definitely be in touch thank you so much this was a great episode i learned a lot so have a good rest of the evening you too bye-bye bye-bye music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.